How many of you know that some people just have the ability to give good gifts? You ever know anybody like that? Some people are just really good at it. My mother-in-law was the best gift giver. She, I don't know how she did it, but she was just a great gift giver. In fact, some of the most memorable gifts that I have ever received came from, came from my mother-in-law. And it seems to me that she just had the knack for good gift giving. And I think that the key to good gift giving is that the better you know the person to whom you are giving the gift the better the gift can become. Does that make sense? Does that sound about right? I think the more personally and the more intimately you know them, the better your ability is to give them a good gift. And my mother-in-law knew me well, and, and she loved me, and she had a special, unique ability to give things that were uniquely from her and uniquely to me, and they made those things extra special to me. And if you want after service, you can ask me what some of those were, but she gave me some doozies. But she passed that ability on to her daughters, which I thought was amazing. And in fact, here's one right here. You guys are probably every Sunday, you're probably really envious of me for having this really nice Yeti. Isn't this beautiful? Yeah, it is. This is one of my favorite cups right here. And this was actually a gift from one of my sisters-in-law. But to know that this would be a good gift for me, there are a couple things that you have to know. First of all, you would have to know that I love to drink iced tea, and so pretty much everywhere I go, I have a cup of iced tea with me. And you know how it is in the summer, the ice doesn't stay icy very long, and my, my sisters-in-law recognized that, and so they bought me this really nice jetty so that I could carry my iced tea with me everywhere I go, and my ice lasts me all day. But the thing that's interesting about it is that they also know that I love Root River Church. And so did you notice the color of my Yeti? And so this is the only Yeti that you'll ever see me use on Sunday morning. This is my special Sunday morning Yeti. It's my Root River Church Yeti. And every morning it's up here with iced tea in it. And, and I use it every Sunday. I've got another one. But I'd never use that other one on Sunday mornings because this one is special. This one is the one that I like to use for Sunday mornings. It's special to me. It's a great gift. And you'd have to know me pretty well to know that that would be the perfect gift. I'm going to show you another one. I'm really proud of this one. This is a gift that I got just this week. Yeah, and I absolutely love this, this gift. So this is my new coffee cup. And what's great about my new coffee cup is that it was the perfect gift, and it has a very specific use. You see, to give a gift this perfect to me, you have to know me really, really well. And I'm going to explain to you why. So the reason that this is, is such a perfect gift is, well, first of all, most of you know that I'm not a coffee drinker. I haven't been a coffee drinker all my life. I've tried to drink coffee, but I, I never really did figure it out. And I always felt, you know, like, man, I wish that I was a coffee drinker because I'd like to enjoy a cup of coffee with my wife because she likes to drink coffee from time to time. And so I thought, I'm going to learn how to enjoy a cup of coffee with my wife. And so, I know it sounds funny, but it's true. And so over the last couple of months, I've been working on teaching myself to drink coffee. And so every day, I will drink a cup of coffee. Sometimes I'll have two cups of coffee. And uh, I'm just, you know, learning to, learning to enjoy it. But most of you wouldn't know that about me because you don't know me that well, do you? You wouldn't have known that of me if I hadn't told you just now. But one thing that you probably do know is that the problem with drinking coffee is that when you drink coffee in a normal cup, it gets cold fast, doesn't it? So you've got to have a special cup to keep your coffee nice and warm. Otherwise, the coffee's hard to enjoy. My problem is, I've tried it in those little styrofoam cups, you know, with the weird lids. I can't stand that lid because every time I try to drink out, I'm burning my mouth and my lips and everything else. And so I hate drinking coffee out of that cup. 
So then I took just a regular mug and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll just start drinking my coffee out of this regular mug. And I got in the car and I drove off and I was on my way to one of the stores in town. And I'm, every time I hit the brakes and traffic or turn, I'm slopping coffee all over. So that doesn't work. I've got some serious problems, as you can tell. The other day, actually it's been two or three weeks ago, I got a promotional coffee cup in the mail. It was made of this same material, but it was, it was really ugly. It was red, and it had the name of the promotional company around, you know, on the sides of it. It had a lid that worked really well, and I could drink out of this cup. It would keep my coffee warm, and the lid was designed so that when I would take a drink, it didn't, you know, it wasn't burning my mouth and all that. And so I'm carrying this cup around. The problem is it didn't fit into my cup holder very well. And so as I'm driving and I hit the brakes, it falls out of the cup holder and it's rolling across the floor. And so, yeah, still got, still got problems. But just this week, my wife gave me this coffee cup. And this is the perfect cup. Do you know why? Because it's made of the right material to keep my coffee warm during the day. If you look at the top, it's got this special lid on it to keep stuff from slopping out. And it's designed to not just burn my lip when I drink out of it. On the bottom, it's narrowed so that it fits perfectly into my cup holder. But none of you would have known that I needed this cup, would you? Because you don't know me well enough. You aren't close enough to me to know that. You know what else you're not close enough to know? You're probably not close enough to know that my favorite color is black. And did you know that this coffee cup is black? One other thing that's really interesting about this coffee cup is my wife knows me well enough to know that as the weather is getting warm, I'm getting more and more excited because uh, last fall I bought a used motorcycle and it's been in storage and I've been dying to get on my motorcycle and ride this thing around. <laughs> so as I'm getting more and more excited for spring and the warm weather because I can't wait to get my motorcycle out and drive around on it my wife bought me this perfect coffee cup made of the right material with the right lid the narrow base and it's black and it says Harley Davidson on it because she knows that this perfectly fits all of my desires and it's exactly what I need to properly drink my coffee without having any problems none of you would have known that would you why not because you're not close enough to me to know all of those details. You don't know me well enough to know that I'm constantly spilling coffee all over my company car. You're, you don't know me well enough to know that the cup that I carry around is ugly and it doesn't work all that well. But Beth is close to me. She knows me really well. She knows me better than anyone else in the whole world. She is my very best friend and she is a great gift giver. I love her. I mean, she's awesome. And so she gave me this cup knowing that it's the perfect gift and that it perfectly fulfills all of my coffee drinking needs. She knows that of me. Now listen to me. She's not perfect. She has some flaws. There are... <laughs> but she knows how to give good gifts. She's not sinless. She's not perfect. She's just perfect to me. Now listen. All right, a little louder. Thank you. Love you, sweetie. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus said, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you? Psalm 121 tells us that He knows your comings and He knows your goings. He knows where you are. He knows what you do. Luke 12, 7 says that He knows the very numbers on the hair of your head. Matthew 6, 8 says that He knows what you need even before you ask of it. And those things 
all speak of intimacy. As well as my wife knows me, as well as your dearest friends know you, no one knows me, and no one knows you more intimately than God does. As close as she is to me, no one knows me as well as God does. And no one, based on that information, has the ability to give the perfect gift just like God does. He knows your every need. He knows your every desire. He knows the deepest thoughts of your mind. And no one can give good gifts like your Father who's in heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. Did you know that? Last week we were in Ephesians chapter 4. And we noted that the gifts that God has given to those of us in the body of Jesus Christ, and we noted that he's given every single one of us a special and unique combination of giftings and abilities. And we found in verse 11, as we were in chapter 4, that he also gave other gifts that are fit for the entire body. And who were they? Do you remember? They were the apostles, they were the prophets, they were the evangelists, they were the preachers, and they were the teachers. So I just want to ask you, Based on what we know about the Father's intimate knowledge of us, and based on what the Bible teaches about His ability to give good gifts, don't you think that we can be sure that the gifts that He gives you are good, and they are valuable, and they are gifts that fit a very specific need in your life? Don't you think that's true? What is the reason that God gave you these gifts? What is the reason that God gave gifts to the church body? Well, that's exactly what our passage for today is going to talk about. And so I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to go to verse 12 where we're going to find out. And I'm going to begin actually in verse 11, and we'll move on to verse 12. And this is what it says. And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now look, to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So here in verse 12, we see that there are three key functions. There are three key features or purposes of the great gifts that God has given to the church body. Verse 11 says that he gave apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and teaching pastors. And why did he give them? For what reason? It says so that they may equip the saints. Do you know who the saints are? Who are the saints? The saints are us. It's all of us. They are the people who have placed their saving faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ unto the saving of their souls. They are those who are in the church family. They are those who belong to Christ. They are those who are the body of Christ. They're the church. Those are the saints. So he gave pastors and teachers for the building up to equip the saint or the church. And in verse 12, according to Paul, That is the primary purpose of the pastor. That is the primary role of the pastor is to equip the saints. Do you see that there? I want to help you understand what it means to equip. It's the Greek word katartismos. And as you've seen in the ESV here, it's translated to equip. Now, it would be best for us to think of this word as thoroughly equipped. It would be good for us to think of this word as completely equipped prepared. That's important for us to know. This word was also used to be made complete. That was another way that they use this word. They use it in medical terms to speak of setting a broken bone so that it would mend completely and be restored completely. So it is the primary role, my friends, listen closely, it is the primary role of the pastor to make sure that the saints are made complete. It is his role to make sure that they are thoroughly prepared. And that is his top priority. That is priority number one for him. And how does he do that? 
Well, if we look at the book of Acts, we're going to see that the faithful pastor has two responsibilities. I'm going to show those to you. They're going to be in Acts chapter 6. But before we get there, I just want to lay the background for you a little bit. In Acts chapter 6, the church was really young. It was a fledgling church, and it was just getting started. It was growing rapidly. Thousands of people were being added to it at a time. The Lord was adding numbers to the church daily. It was growing really quickly. And the apostles were the leaders of the church. The apostles were the ones who were pastoring the church. They were doing all of the ministry, which continued to become more and more difficult to maintain as the church continued to grow. And in Acts chapter 242, we read that they were teaching the word of God. The apostles were responsible for teaching the word of God and developing the church doctrine. That's what Acts 2.42 says that they did. But when you get to chapter 3, you see that they were ministering to the sick and to the needy. And by the time you get to chapters 4 and 5, you read that they were facilitating the selling of property and the sharing of possessions to help provide for the daily needs of all of the people who are in the church. And then when you get to chapter 6, they were approached by a group of Greeks who complained to them that the Greek women were being neglected in the daily distribution of church's provisions. So they were passing out food and all of the things. They needed to survive day by day. And these people came to them and said, look, the Greek women are not getting the same proportions as the Jewish women. We have, all, we have problems here. We're not being fair to, uh, to the Greek women. And this is how the apostles responded. I want you to see this now in verse 2. And the 12 summoned together, this is the 12 apostles who were remaining, summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now look in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word of God. Do you see that? We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word of God. So here we see in the New Testament church the model for the pastor's role in the church, the model for the teacher's role in the church. It is his first responsibility of the faithful pastor is to devote himself to prayer. Have you ever wondered what it is that the pastor should pray on behalf of the members of the church? Have you ever wondered how the pastor should pray for the people who attend the church? Should he pray that they would be rich? Should he pray that they would be wealthy? Should he pray that they would never get sick? Are those the things that he should pray about? Well, I think the Apostle Paul was a great model of prayer for the church. Wouldn't you agree? Spend a little time digging. And I want to show you some of the things that the Apostle Paul prayed for. First of all, the Apostle Paul thanked God for his people. And he thanked God constantly, praying joyfully, thanking God for the fact that they were saved. And he spent his time thanking the Lord for their salvation. He went on to pray that they would minnow, that they would remain, that they would stay, that they would abide in Christ, and that they would grow in their righteousness, that they would grow in their purity, and that they would be spiritually strengthened. That was Paul's prayer. Paul prayed that the people of his churches would be filled with wisdom. He prayed that they would be filled with knowledge. He went on to pray that they would be filled with love for one another, sacrificial, giving love for one another. He prayed that they would be filled with hope. He prayed that they would have unity. He prayed that they would have peace. He prayed that they would have endurance in times of personal struggle. He prayed that while they were being persecuted, that they would have endurance to survive the persecution. He didn't pray that they would be taken out of it. He prayed that they would endure it. 
Because he knew that they would grow during these times of persecution. He knew that these people would grow during their times of struggles. Pastors, teachers, and staff members of Root River Church, listen closely to me. This is how you are to pray for the people of Root River Church. This is how you are to pray for the people who go to Root River Church. If you have ever heard the overwhelming needs of the people of this body, and if you've ever wondered to yourself, how in the world do I pray for these people? How do I pray for such immense needs? How do I pray for people in such deep struggle? I want you to know that this is the biblical pattern of how you pray for the people of Root River Church. It's important that you know that. You call them out by name. You call them out by name and before God and you thank Him that He has saved them. You pray for them, thanking God that He has saved them. You pray that they would be made strong in the Word of God. You pray that they would have hope. You pray that they would have endurance in times of struggle and sorrow. You pray that they would love one another. This is how you're to pray for the people of, of the church. You pray that they would endure difficult times. You don't pray that they would become rich. You don't pray that they would never become sick. That's not God's purpose for this church. But you pray that they would grow in righteousness. You pray that they would grow in purity. You pray that they would be guided by the power of the Holy Spirit and that they would remain in Him, digging their roots deep in the Word of God. That's how you pray for the people of the church. That's how the faithful pastor prays for his people. I want you to know that the next responsibility of the faithful pastor is the ministry of the Word. We will commit ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. The faithful pastor is one who should serve. He should deliver the Word of God to God's people. Do you know that's always been the responsibility of the faithful pastor throughout history? Nothing has ever changed. Nehemiah 8.8, Ezra the priest, who was the teacher of the law, took the book of the law and he stood before the people and he had all the other priests gather around with him. And they led the people, I love this, they led the people in the raising of their hands and bowing down before God in worship. And then if you take a look at chapter 8 and verse 8, it says this, they read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Do you see that? Paul's instruction to Timothy was very, very similar in the New Testament. This is what he said in 2 Timothy 4.1. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, now jump to verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. You see, that is the responsibility of the pastor. It is to make the Word of God clear and to help the people understand what it means. It's to take the Word of God and it's to use the Word of God to correct those who are off course. It's to take the Word of God and to use it to rebuke those who are disobedient. It's to take the Word of God and to teach and to encourage with patience and love. That's the role of the pastor. That's how the faithful pastor does his business. I'm going to show you one more New Testament passage in which Paul shares with us his perspective on the pastor and the role of the church, and that's in Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29. I want you to look at this. Christ, Paul says, we proclaim, listen to this, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone what? 
mature in Christ, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, for this I labor, for this I work hard, for this I agonize, for this I struggle with all energy that he powerfully works within me, that the church may be made mature, that the believer may be made strong in his faith that he may grow up. Have you ever wondered what the pastor's job is? Have you ever talked about that with your family or your friends? I'll bet if you ask around, you get all kinds of great ideas. I mean, some will tell you it's the pastor's job to counsel people who have problems. Or maybe his job is to visit those who are sick. (laughs) One person said that his job is to drink coffee and play golf with people to build relationships. He may have something. Listen, he may well do all of those things from time to time. He may do those things from time to time, but that's not the primary responsibility of the faithful pastor. The faithful pastor's responsibility is to pray for his people and to teach them what the Word of God says. That's his job. Colossians 1.28 says that when he does that, his people will become what? They'll become mature. They will become built up. They will become strong. They will become mature. And listen, friends, when the people of his church become mature, the most amazing thing happens. It is the most amazing thing. The people of the church, when they become mature, then they they become completely prepared. They become thoroughly equipped to do something that's absolutely wonderful. And I'm going to take you now to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12 one more time, and I want you to see what happens. It says that he gave pastors and teachers, why? Look at verse 12, to equip the saints for what? For the work of the ministry. Do you see this? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So friends, listen, it's not the pastor who does the work of the ministry, according to Paul. The pastor dedicates himself to prayer for the people of the church. The pastor dedicates himself to properly instructing them in the word of God so that they become mature. And what do mature people do? Is it possible that we have gotten things wrong all of these years? Is it possible that the thought that the pastor should be the one who's doing all the ministry of the church is actually a misunderstanding of the Word of God? It's not what it looks like here, is it? It says that the pastor equips the saints and he brings them to maturity so that the saints can do the work of the ministry. They do the work of the ministry. It is the members of the church. It is the body of Christ that does the work of the ministry. Wait a minute. I think about that a minute. Have we been wrong? By suggesting that the pastor is the one who goes around counseling people? He may very well do that from time to time. I want you to know that he may very well do that. But what if, what if the pastor prays for people? And what if the pastor teaches the Word of God to people? And because of that, they become mature. And then God raises those people up and he equips them with a special gifting of encouragement. And those people counsel from the Word of God. What happens if that's the way it works? What happens if the pastor is one who prays for people and he teaches people from the Word of God, helping them understand what it means so that they can become mature, and God raises up people who have a special gifting of mercy, and those people exercise their spiritual gifting to go minister to the sick and to the ailing? Is that possible? I wonder. Do you see the point? That maybe All along, we have missed the point, and maybe it is the saints who should be doing the ministry. Maybe it is the saints who should be prepared and exercising their spiritual gifts so that all of the rest of us could be built up. That's the point. 
According to Paul, the pastor matures the saints. According to Paul, he makes them strong and he equips them and he builds them up so that they can go out and do the work of the ministry. That's the way that it works. He doesn't say that the pastor does the work of the ministry. He says the saints do it. The church does it. The people do it. That's everybody in this room. You do the work of the ministry. Well, I wonder if it's possible that God could raise up godly counselors from right here in this room. I wonder if God could raise up people who are men's and women's ministry leaders right here in this room. I wonder if it's possible that we could have young adults leaders right here in this room. Is it possible that the pastor of our next church plant is sitting right here in this room this morning? Is that possible? Is it possible that we have life group leaders sitting here right now this morning? Do we have special needs ministers right here this morning? Have you ever thought about the word pastoral care and pastoral care ministries? Do you think that's possibly a misnomer? Why isn't it just care ministries? Think about that. Why isn't it just care ministries? It's interesting to me, friends. It's interesting to me that churches, and I think this tends to happen as churches get really large and and they begin to grow huge in number, that they begin to develop ministry professionals for absolutely every single thing under the sun. They develop ministry professionals who do absolutely all of the work in the church. They have paid staff who are pastoral care pastors. They have paid staff who are women's pastors. They have paid staff who handle whatever else you can think of. And I just wonder, how can they then, after hiring all of these staffs to handle all of these ministries, be surprised when church members don't get up and participate in ministry? I wonder, what would you have people to do? If this is the way you run your church, what would you have people to do? They have professional pastors who handle every single aspect of church ministry, and all they have to do is come and enjoy the show. There's nothing for them to do because you've got paid people, you've got professionals who are doing it all. Paul says pastors pray for your people and help them understand the Word of God so that they can apply it to their lives. And when they do that, they become prepared, they become equipped, and they will do the work of the ministry. That's what they're supposed to do. Listen, friends, I'm no more a minister than any of you. I'm no more a minister than any one of you. You all have special giftings to do the work of the ministry. You all have special giftings to make sure that every needed ministry is completely covered by all of the people right here in this room. God has given us everything that we need to sustain our church and to do everything that we need to minister to this body to build it up until it becomes the full measure of the likeness of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. And then what happens is you take your gifting, I pray for you, I teach you the Word, and hopefully you can take the Word and you can use it and you take your gifting and you go out and you minister to all the other people in this church, listen, God knows you so intimately. This God who knows you so intimately and who knows how to give the perfect gift has given the gift of teaching pastors to the church body to completely prepare us and to make sure that we are completely mature so that we are able, we are well equipped to do the work of the ministry. Why has he done that? Why has He given us those gifts? Why has He given us the gifts of church leaders? Why has He given us the gifts of those of you who minister in the body, the spiritual gifts that He's given to all of you? Why has He done that? 
why are these gifts so perfect? Why has, he, why has he taken the time to design a gift specifically for you? I want you to see what happens when you're faithful to use your gifts. Let's look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you see in this verse the reason that God gave us pastors and teachers? Do you see that here? Do you see the reason that you need to exercise your spiritual gifts right there in that verse? Verse 13 says that as we do that, the entire body is united in the knowledge of Christ. It causes us to reach mature manhood. It causes us to grow up, spiritually speaking, to become spiritual men and women, to become strong in our spirits. Listen to me. God wants you to be mature in your faith. God wants you to be grown up in your faith. The goal of your spiritual life is for you to mature. That's the goal of your spiritual life. It is the most important thing in your life. For you to grow and mature spiritually is more important than for you to grow and mature physically. It is so important. Your maturity is so important to God that he gave you the perfect gifts to ensure that it happens. He wants to make sure that it happens. And why does he want you to mature? Take a look at verse 14. It says, so that we may no longer be children. So we may no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human, by human cunning and by the craftiness in deceitful schemes. How many of you like babies? Everybody, right? Babies are great, man. Babies are awesome. They're all cute and cuddly and sometimes they smell bad, but... I mean, that's part of the deal, right? I mean, I loved it when my kids were babies. And they brought me a lot of joy when they were, when they were babies. But the conversation with them wasn't great when they were, <laughs> I mean, you know, who loves his daddy? <laughs> <laughs> but now that my kids are mature, I can have great conversation with them. You see, the problem with babies is even though they bring a lot of joy to your life, they're also a lot of work, aren't they? Babies are a lot of work. I mean, think about this. Do you know how selfish babies are? I mean, babies are really selfish. They really are. I mean, they want the things that they want, and they want them right now. And if a baby wants his bottle, and he wants it right now, and you don't give it to him, what's he going to do? He's going to cry, and he's going to scream. You see, they want what they want, and they want it right now. They are only concerned about the things that affect them at that very moment. And if they don't get their way, if they don't get what they want, they begin to scream, and they begin to cry, and they want everybody in the whole house to know that they're upset. And sometimes they do that at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Do you know babies don't make the best choices? I mean, even as they get a little bit older, I mean, they, they, do you know babies and toddlers, uh, they will put absolutely everything they can find into their mouths. The, anything that they can get. It doesn't matter what it is. They pick it up, and the very first thing to do is they just shove it right into their mouths. So the moment then, because of all of these things, the moment that a child is born, what happens is responsible parents begin the process of helping the youngster, helping the baby mature, don't they? A good parent will help his baby mature. I mean, first the mother helps the baby to grow by giving it some milk. The baby likes to drink milk. And soon he's had enough milk and he's done that long enough that he's mature enough that he can eat solid food, doesn't he? But he's not very discerning. And so if you allow the kid to pick out whatever kind of food he wants, even though it's solid, what he's going to do is he's going to pick out mac and cheese, he's going to pick out McDonald's, and he's going to pick out candy. And he's going to eat all of those things five times a day if you'd allow him. That's just, isn't that the way it works? Some of us do that as adults. But 
Because you parents love your little child, because you love your baby so much, you want him to become strong and healthy, don't you? And so then what you do, especially moms, they'll do this. They'll force the kid to eat broccoli and strawberries. Dad will just give him cake or something. But moms will force the kid to eat broccoli. They'll force him to eat strawberries. They'll force him to eat the things that they know are good for the child, even though the child may not always like it. And before you know it, he's mature enough that he goes off to school. And when he gets to school, he's not quite responsible enough yet to do his homework. And so mom and dad have to follow him around and make sure that he go on power school and make sure you follow him around, make sure that he's doing his homework and he's doing all of the things that he's supposed to do, right? And then what happens is, eventually the kid says, hey dad, I'm 16, I think it's time for me to learn to drive. I want the keys to the car and I should be out driving around. And the responsible dad says, as soon as you get A's and B's and I can see that you can show me that you are responsible enough to drive around in my vehicle, then we'll talk about it. Right? Isn't that how it works? That's how it works in my house. And then what happens is, eventually, the kid graduates high school, and he goes into college. Eventually, he gets married, and and you understand, right? That's how it works. So the process is one of maturing your child. One thing that you don't want is for your baby to stay a baby forever, do you? What you don't want to have happen is you don't want to have a 30-year-old kid living with you who acts like a 2-year-old. How many of you have ever told your kids, will you just act your age? I heard that a lot. Listen. Babies are great, and they're really important. Do you know if we stop having babies, soon we have no life at all? We have to have babies. But do you know that if we have babies and they stay babies forever, we have no life at all either. If babies never mature, eventually the life cycle ends, doesn't it? Do you know why? Because babies don't have more babies. Listen, we must force our babies. We must force our children to mature, don't we? Parents, isn't that what you do? And I want you to know, It's exactly the same in the church. Listen, churches that don't have young believers will die. But churches whose young believers never grow up will also die. We need young believers. But the point of having them is to complete the spiritual life cycle. The point of having them is to help them to complete the spiritual cycle in their lives. As immature believers, everything is about that immature believer, isn't it? That's true. Everything is about the immature believer. We should do all of the things that I want to do. How come none of the things I want to do ever happen? If you don't do the things I want to do, then I'm going to throw a fit and I'm going to get all upset, figuratively speaking, of course. Listen, we need to give them spiritual milk. We need to give them spiritual formula until they're strong enough for solid food and a steady diet of doctrine and a steady diet of the Bible and strong teaching so that they can become strong and they can become mature. And then we teach them to be discerning, don't we? And we say, hey, don't just tune in to every TV show you can find. Don't just look up every preacher that you find on the internet and take what he says and plug it in your mouth. You can't eat everything. Don't we have to have that conversation with them? And then what we do is we say, hey, that's not healthy. That's not good food. Let me give you some good food from the Word of God. Digest it and eat it. And even though it's not your favorite, even though sometimes it might taste like broccoli and spinach, I'm going to give it to you anyway, and you need to eat it because it'll make you strong. And so because of that, we don't neglect to teach them about sin. We don't neglect to teach them about substitutionary atonement. We don't neglect to teach them about hell because it makes them strong And it's important that they know that. We don't err on the side of grace, love, and heaven to prevent ourselves from teaching them the truth about sin and hell. It's because they don't understand. They don't understand the value of good, solid, healthy food. That's the problem. 
And so what happens is we continue to teach the whole counsel of God and sometimes they don't like it and sometimes <laughs> they refuse to eat it and, they, and you know, the parent says, okay, well, you're not leaving the table until you eat it, right? And they feed it to the dog and they get up and leave anyway. <laughs> but listen, friends, soon with a steady diet of spiritual food, with a steady diet of spiritual exercise, those young believers, they become mature and they're able to face temptation. And they're able to face struggles. And they're able to survive during difficult times. And eventually, the youngster will become a man, spiritually speaking. And what happens when the immature believer is brought to a place of maturity? Do you know what happens? What's the very next thing that happens in your home when your child grows up and he comes to a place of maturity? Take a look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it can build itself up in love. So rather than the child being tossed around by every little thing like a bunch of babies, spiritually mature believers are able to speak the truth of the gospel message, and they do it in love, and they begin begin to proclaim the truth to a world that has been deceived. They begin to declare the truth to a world that has been thrown out of joint and a world that has been deceived by the cunning of the enemy. And they begin to evangelize and they begin to reach the lost. And in doing that, they are creating what? Spiritual babies of their own. You know what's better than a baby? A grandbaby, right? So I'm told. I'm in no hurry to find out. Sam, Maddie, take your time. <laughs> oh, and then what happens is pastors and teachers who teach sound doctrine are raising up a mature body of believers. That's what they're doing. And they're raising up a body of believers who will be able to exercise their spiritual gifts to perform the ministry of the church. And those people then will use their spiritual gifts to reach out to others and they'll speak the truth and love and more people will come to know Christ and the kingdom of God will be advanced. You see, when the body is equipped like this, it functions properly and it grows strong. Its roots grow deep in the Word of God and it'll be able to withstand the tricks of the enemy. It'll be able to withstand the temptation of the enemy. Friends, listen to me. Churches whose pastors and teachers are constantly feeding their congregation spiritual mac and cheese are not nourishing them. And they are not equipping them to do the work of the ministry. You show me a church where the pastor has to have his hands in every single ministry so that he can guide it and control it. And I'll show you a pastor who's not properly trained his people in the Word of God. You show me a church where the members are not active in performing the ministry of the church body, and I'll show you a pastor who hasn't properly ministered to his church body and taught them to exercise their gifts. You show me a church whose members are constantly concerned about how everything affects them, you show me a church where the members are constantly concerned about themselves and there's constant backbiting and there's constant arguing and there's constant disunity. You show me a church where the members sit back and watch and refuse to get engaged. You show me a church where the, where the members refuse to do the work of the Spirit and I will show you a pastor who has fed his people a steady diet of mac and cheese. It's the pastor's job to pray. It's the pastor's job to teach the Word of God that the saints may be made strong and that they may be made mature. And the truth is, sometimes we don't like that kind of food, do we? Sometimes we say, 
I want something a little easier, a little softer, a little easier to chew. Something that doesn't disagree with me so much. It doesn't disagree with my sensibilities so much. But I want you to know that it is the pastor's job to preach and to teach the Word of God that you may be made strong and mature even if you don't like the taste of the food sometimes. God knows you intimately. He knows you closely. He knows you personally. He knows how to give the perfect and most practical gift to you. He knows that what you need more than anything else is to mature until you reach the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what you need to do. He needs you, you need to mature, having carefully thought it through, knowing what you need, and knowing you so perfectly. He gave you the perfect combination of people who will pray for you, People who will open the Word of God and stand before you and give you its meaning so that you can understand it. And then he put together the perfect combination of abilities, passions, skills, and spiritual giftings. And he gave each one of you a special and unique combination so that you could exercise them to build the body up. Do you see? And when you do that, and when we as a church body are faithful to do that without compromise. You can be sure that it won't be long and He's going to entrust to us new spiritual babies. He's going to entrust to us more people that need to be brought to a place of maturity. And our church family will be filled with joy and unity. And soon we'll have grandbabies that are growing up and having babies of their own. That's how it works in the kingdom of God. That's how it's supposed to work in the church. Did you know that? Father, I thank You that You have loved us to the extent that you've gone out of your way to design for us the perfect gift. I thank you, Lord, for every single person that is in this building this morning. I thank you for the unique combination of giftings that you've given to every single person in this room. I thank you that in this room right now we have youth leaders, we have church planners, we have counselors, we have everything we need to effectively do the work of your kingdom in this sinful world. And so now, Lord, I pray that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to spiritual maturity, that we would take the word and that we would allow it to cut us and prune us and to shape us and form us, and that, God, we would submit ourselves to the instruction of your word. I pray, God, then, that you would give us the courage and the boldness to exercise our spiritual giftings not to the building up of our own ego, not to the building up of ourselves, but to operate them in sacrificial love, humbling ourselves so that we can build up your church body.